This podcast is brought to you by Eisner Award-winning Legend Comics and Coffee in Omaha, Nebraska, and supporting listeners like you. Go to TwoHeadedNerd.com and click Donate, or visit Patreon.com backslash TwoHeadedNerd to become a supporter today. Our story this week picks up where we left off last week. Broadcasting from the quarantine ziggurat at Omaha, deep below the metro area, it is our pleasure to welcome you to another landmarkish episode of the Two-Headed Nerd Comic Book Podcast, episode 582. I'm the internet's Joe Patrick. And my name is Matt Baum. Yesterday was new comic book day, so we've got a pile of comics to review for Wednesday, July 22nd. And after that, it is up to the THN Sanctum Sanctorum to discuss our must-read picks for next week. And finally, Willie Toots invites Matt to another edition of Swords and Scrolls to revisit the movie and the Marvel graphic novel adaptation, Willow. I had a lot of fun uh, reading this one. It was it was way better than I thought it was going to be. <laughs> I love Willow. No, I mean before, the, the comic adaptation I'm talking about. Oh, all right. Yeah. But before we start upsetting sensitive listeners with our peck references, it's review time in the ziggurat. I can use that word because I'm five foot three, so I can throw that around. Yeah, except you had me say it. You so people, yeah, you people cannot. So there you go. Well, thanks for writing it in. Then I didn't even <laughs> think about. This Wednesday saw the beginning of the Joker War, the return of a Power Ranger killer, and the Senator is back. Matt, why don't you get this review train chugging? But before we do, the THN bar manager Justin is here with a nerdy cocktail to help you enjoy your weekly reading. Justin. All right, nerds. So this week we're talking about Willow. Um, I think about all the fantasy uh, action films that came out during that time. Um, I started thinking about cocktails, and honestly, you know, yes, do we have spirits in these in these films in these times? Uh, I'm sure that there were, um, but for me, what I think about most, uh, I would think that they're drinking, you know, a lot of fermented uh, fruits for a little low ABV drinks. But you know, that that just seems to really work for me. So we're going to take a. Uh, a Mexican staple, which is tapache, which is essentially just fermented pineapple rinds. And we're gonna make that this week, and I'm gonna teach you guys how to make tapache from scratch. So, first thing you need is you need a pineapple. Um, you're gonna need to get some kind of uh, raw, unbleached sugar, like turbinado, demerara, or um, sugar in the raw, at the very least. Um, one of those three kinds of sugars will work perfectly. You know, if you're thinking about a pineapple uh, kind of fermented beer, maybe you could also think about some spices you might like in there. Maybe you want a little ginger in there for a little bit of kick. Maybe you want a little bit of allspice. Um, You know, when it comes to spicing this thing up, you can do it however you want, or you can just leave it plain and just let it be pineapple. All right, so you're going to go home with your pineapple, your possible spices if you pick some up, and your sugar. So we're going to take that pine and we got the meat and now we have all of our rinds. Uh, we're going to kind of cut those down and break them up. You're going to need a, some kind of a glass container, like a, you know, maybe a gallon glass jar with a nice decent side lid on the top. Not a lid, but a nice size opening rather. So you're going to put your pineapple in there that you've cut up with the, all the rind. Uh, your spices on top of those rinds if you're adding any. So let's say after we break our pineapple down that we Uh, Put that into a measuring cup and it comes out that we have eight ounces or eight cups of pineapple rind. Uh, You're going to want to kind of do equal parts here. So eight cups of pineapple rind, uh, then you're going to do eight cups of water, and then eight cups of sugar. However, the water and the sugar, I want you to mix in a separate bowl and I want you to get that water super hot and turn it almost into a simple uh, and break that sugar down. Then you're literally just going to pour that simple syrup solution right over top of your pineapple rind. You want to make sure that your pineapple is uh, not sticking out of the water. It needs to be submerged, okay? You're going to kind of stir this as you go. Also, that that big opening at the top of the jar we talked about, you want to leave that open so that it can breathe. Um, If you're worried about bugs or gnats, just maybe put a piece of paper towel or some cheesecloth over the top with a rubber band so nothing can get down in there. Now after that, you're literally, this is just a waiting game now. Bacteria's gonna start naturally eating the sugar off. You're gonna start to see this stuff bubble. Um, you're gonna, it's gonna start getting some really, really funky smells. Um, most of the time for, I would say for this, you're gonna look maybe four to seven days before it's gonna be ready. 
just keep trying with the spoon as you go, as you go, as you go. You'll notice when you start, you're super, super sweet. As days go on, it gets more bubbly. And then you just get that sweet spot where you pull a spoon out and you're like, this is fantastic. That's, your, that's when you do it. Pull it out, strain it all off, go straight into the fridge. The cool thing about that is once you put it in the fridge, it kind of shuts down the fermentation process. So this stuff will be good, you know, a good probably six weeks, but it won't last that long because you're gonna drink this. It's gonna be maybe four or 5% alcohol level, just like a beer. But I'm, I'm here to tell you guys, throw it on some rocks, really great summertime drink. You'll find yourself batching this stuff up all the time. Enjoy. You can find the recipe for Newland Tapache in the show notes for this episode. And going forward, we'll try and add them. And then maybe we could even come up with a cocktail book for our patrons or something. Illustrated by Mr. Joe Patrick. Thank you, Justin. That sounds like a drink any Nelwyn or Daikini could get behind. Matt, Excelsior. Excelsior. Why don't you, why don't you start us off? My first review goes to Batman number 95 from DC. I haven't read Batman for a little bit, so I decided time to check in. This one's written by James Tinian, the five, and it's got art by Jorge Jimenez. Come on, man. The James Tinian did not upgrade. It's still James Tinian, the four. Hey, he is a four, isn't he? I'm down at the five for some reason. It's written by James Tinian, the four with art by Jorge Jimenez. The Joker War starts here in part one of Tinian's Bat Epic, and things look about as bad as they possibly could be for bats. The Joker has used the Underbroker. He's like a bad guy businessman to expose Bruce Wayne for extorting Wayne Enterprises to fund Batman. And then he took over the company. I mean, there is an argument there because theoretically he is extorting money from Wayne Industries to make all his bat stuff. Yeah, but who lets the Joker take over the company? It was through How a shadow. It was like a shadow company and stuff like that. Nobody knew it was the Joker. And it turned and out aren't, it is. And aren't all businessmen's bad? No, not all of them. I mean, some are like eh. Elon Musk is bad, but I think- like I'm not talking about small business owners. <laughs> I'm talking about businessmans. Now that the Joker is Bruce Wayne rich, it's time to buy Gotham. Meanwhile, Punchline uses Lucius Fox to infiltrate Bat's secret micro caves in Wayne Tower and all hell breaks loose. Tinian has been doing really good work on this Bat run. I caught up this weekend and it's been a lot of fun. Jimenez's art is nothing short of stunning. There is a panel where Bats is climbing Wayne Tower and like leaning back and I can't afford it, but I fucking need it. It was so cool. <laughs> the Joker War looks to be the big event that Tinian's been building to. And as much as we've poked fun at DC's antics with Punchline making four first appearances, she's being used very well in this story. And she makes for a great addition to the Bat family of villains. You know what? I like her better than Harley so far. She's capable and she's not an idiot. And she's a badass villain to fight Batman. I'm giving this a buy it. Uh, I didn't read it because I can't. I honestly can't remember the last issue of Batman that I read. I think they did like, a good enough job in this. You would have been fine. I, I know that I'm not that far behind. But with, with comics going on pause for so long, I like... I have to figure out where I am. Right. Uh, <laughs> and so I, I haven't read it yet. Um, I will say that, that I love Jorge uh, Jimenez. Man. And uh, the internet made a big deal about this dream sequence, George Clooney, Batman costume. Yeah. Uh, that, that shows up for five seconds. Yeah, I wasn't going to say anything because it's kind of a weird spoiler thing, but I was like, oh. Weird. Oh, no, it was all over the internet. Oh, okay. It was all, all right. over the internet. And it was kind of fun. one of the variant covers had it on the front. It was kind of fun. No, and, yeah. and quite honestly, like, is this a great jumping on point? No, but you would be okay. You'd be fine. Sure, sure. My first review goes to Power Rangers, colon, Ranger Slayer, number one from Boom. Boom continues their streak of publishing Power Rangers comics that have no business being as good as they are. This one shot follows the Ranger Slayer, who is apparently the original Pink Ranger from an alternate universe. That was formerly enslaved by Lord Dacon. That's like some Star Trek shit, man. That's all that yeah, is. Yeah, you know what? I she, I mean, she might as well have had a goatee. Uh, reading this comic was like coming into the last act of the last movie of a 10-part film franchise. And yet, writer Ryan Parrott weaves a tale that still feels accessible to anyone that has even a passing familiarity with the Rangers from their childhood. The fact that artist Dan Mora has not already become a comics superstar continues to baffle me. This comic book 
is gorgeous. It's gorgeous. It is. This guy needs a high profile gig immediately. Boom's policy of putting out 48 page comics for eight bucks is still a bit of a sticking point, but Ranger Slayer number one was a complete blast to read and I'm giving it a buy it. Maybe that's why more people aren't seeing Dan more of because he's in 48 page books that cost eight dollars. Maybe that's I mean, the reason. <laughs> he's just he's just doing these Boom Studios books, yeah. and I'm like, dude. Okay, here's what I don't understand. Where are DC and Marvel swooping him up to an exclusive contract? He's amazing. Huge. He really is. And these books have been so good. And for some reason, they they tried to reboot, you know, the Power Rangers not too long ago in a movie that failed. It was a pile of crap. And no, it was great. The Power Rangers movie is great. No, and I will not hear anything it bad about it. Is not. I, I, I am not. I'm not going to no. argue that it was a financial success because I don't no. have those numbers. But that movie is really fun. It was not good. What they need to do is just turn to Parrot, turn to these other guys that work at a Boom, and go, "Hey, you got a good thing going here. Help us relaunch this, please, and do it this way. A little more adult for the fans that grew up with the Power Rangers." I can't believe how good these comics are. I'm giving it a buy it as well. And I never cared about the Power Rangers. They were just, they missed me. I was a little too old when they came up and it just missed me. But these comics are fan fucking fantastic. Yeah. Like I was in high school by the time the Power Rangers hit the States. And so it was just the thing that was on in the early morning before I went to school. Right. And like, I've always, like, that's literally all I ever saw of it. I've always loved the Japanese super force of heroes that fights monsters and shit. That's always been a thing for me. It's just the Power Rangers a little too kiddy. And for when I was, when I first saw it, it was just a little too kids driven. Yeah, sure. My next review is Vlad Dracul from Scout. This is written by Matteo Stracul, who also sounds like a vampire, with art by Andreas Muti. The real-life, somewhat historical story of the man who would be known as Dracula comes to comics, and it's very well executed. It's a little long and a little lacking in the supernatural department, but the creators are going for a more historic bend on Vlad here. I get that. Now, it's not that I don't find the story interesting, but honestly, the most interesting part of Dracula I'd like to read about in comics is the supernatural blood-sucking king of the vampire. It's the part where he becomes <laughs> Dracula. We all know and love. The creators do an excellent job here. It, the art is beautiful, but it's kind of a snooze fest to read. Moody is super talented, and this is really well painted. The colors are gorgeous. Stracool obviously did plenty of research and wrote a very solid script. I just don't know if I am up for reading two more 64-page chapters. It was just boring. I'm giving it a skim it because it's very well executed, but it was a little boring. <laughs> yeah, I have to agree. Like, if you're gonna if you're gonna pitch a comic to me about Vlad Tepes or whatever his name was. Yeah, Vlad Tepes. Vlad Tepes Dracula. Uh, like, if it does not end with the vampire folklore, it's not interesting to me. This could have been about any psycho historical figure. Yeah, I mean. And yeah, it was it was a little bit too long and a little bit too dry. Uh, the art was gorgeous. I'm also giving it a skim it. I, I don't know where the story is going. Maybe they're going to get to that supernatural stuff. I but don't think so. I think they're, I think this is going to stay pretty historical. This felt like a graphic novel broken into chunks. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like yeah. the pacing is off. I, I don't know. It, yeah. It's, it's a skim it for me. I don't think the pacing was off, but I did think it was slow. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. Like if I was reading this as a, as a graphic novel that was like, I don't know. 180 pages, let's say 128 pages. Yeah. It would have been different, but as one, as a, as the first issue of a comic book. Right. There was definitely not a, a like a break in the end when you're like, Oh shit, that's where we're at. Huh? Yeah. Okay, yeah we'll no. tune in next time and let's see what's up. <laughs> Speaking of scout comics, my next review is of Yasmin. Number one, this comic follows the life of a teenage Iraqi girl whose family barely escapes the ISIS invasion of Mosul in 2014. Mosul. Mosul, you know. Yeah. And calling it an escape is being pretty generous. Uh, the story jumps between the horror that her life became and her eventual reunion with her family in the United States two years later. The storytelling by writer Saif Ahmed and artist Fabiana Mascalo is masterful, placing you into a world that feels completely different than your own, yet also feels so familiar. 
these people have hopes. They have dreams. They're just like you and I. They buy new houses. They're excited about moving to a new town. And it, and their life just descends into this horror show. Uh, Yasmin, number one, is a difficult and challenging read that reminds the reader that there are real people that were and still are involved in this conflict that are much more like us than cable news would have us believe. I'm giving this a huge buy it. Yeah, th- this was really well executed in the sense that like it was feel bad comic books, but it wasn't like feel bad porn where it's just like, oh, you think that's yeah, no, bad? That's not- Wait, it just gets worse. You know, <laughs> OK, yeah, it. it's not feel bad like the boys or the right. preacher. You know, it's like, no, this is like well, but not life. even like that, like a book like Sheriff of Babylon, which I really enjoyed, but went to like some really, really darkest places it could. This does a good job of letting you relate to the character and realizing that they are in a bad position and there's terrible things happening, but they are just someone like me and like they're a family. It's not like, right. Oh yeah. Every character in this is terrible and they're a terrible situation. They make terrible choices because they have no, nothing else terrible to do. And it's terrible. You know, <laughs> they're telling a good story here. It's very well illustrated. I'm giving it a buy it as well. My next review is Amazing Spider-Man Sins Rising, the prelude from Marvel. This is Nick Spencer getting ready for his next Spidey story. They just had to do it separately in a prelude, I guess, with art by Guillermo Santa. The entire issue is sort of this strange fever dream that revisits the original Sin Eater who died back in the pages of Peter Parker, Spider-Man number 136, but that's never stopped the good villain in the past. And Spencer is using one of his own creations to bring the Sin Eater back from hell to menace Spidey again. Now, Joe and I revisited the Gene DeWolf Spidey saga not too long ago during our cosmic long box days when comics weren't shipping. And we both agreed the reason the story was so great was the reality, the street level of the story, the, the, the idea that something like this could happen where Spider-Man's not dealing with Sandman or Mysterio. He's dealing with a crazy person that is doing something that they think is right. And that's even more dangerous than perhaps Craven the Hunter, right? right? So I would argue using a demon, I'm not gonna name who, we can probably figure it out, to bring the Sin Eater back from hell kind of cheapens the idea of the character and the story that they're lifting it from. This was not a bad issue, but it does feel like it's borrowing from classic Spidey mythos and not adding much to the story there's no reason why you couldn't just give us another sin eater who heard about the sin eater and wants to do what the sin eater did or a militia of sin eaters or something but the whole coming back from hell and everything takes a human character and just sort of i don't know it almost seems too easy i'm giving this a skim it the art was good there's some clever things that happen here but i can't say it even and by the way the back matter where they really try to sell me about how what I just read was scary and dangerous. And I am not ready <laughs> for the Spider-Man event that's happening. I am not ready. Do you understand, man? I was like, look, I get it, but I think I might. And they were like, no, you're not. <laughs> I was like, okay. <laughs> it's a skim it. Yeah. I mean, I don't really mind these like preludes that set up the events. I understand why they didn't want to do sure. it as a regular issue. Sure. It really is just like a, reintroduction to the character of the original sin eater um i i did not love the art i did love the unexpected flashback uh to his death yeah reprinting the pages from the original comic uh drawn by sal Buscema, which were great right it was, and it was cool the way they did some of that was executed well i don't have a problem with that but it i don't know i i, I just i mean i kind of agree like so here are the options uh, the villain, and who, if you're reading Spider-Man at the at the moment, you know who the villain is. It's not a secret. Okay. Uh, the villain resurrects the Sin Eater, and so the Sin Eater is either going to have a supernatural gimmick, which basically makes him a different character altogether. So who cares? Like, why trade on that name? It's right. it's not the same character, right? Or it's, this isn't like the demo the demo goblin, or even sure. the hobgoblin, or something. You know, like we're all like, oh, the next phase of the goblin is scarier and crazier. I mean, 
the demo yeah. sin eater, basically, or whatever. Uh, or 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 the sin eater is going to be resurrected as just the normal guy he used to be with a shotgun, right? Which is not very scary. No. Ooh, unless he's uh, got Ghost Rider's old, or pardon me, John, was it Blaze's old Hellfire shotgun? Ooh, <laughs> yeah, Johnny Blaze's that would be Hellfire neat. shotgun. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I. <sighs> Nick Spencer's whole run on Spider-Man for me is a skimmit, and this is no different. I just... Yeah, that's where I'm at. I, lo- I love those original Sin Eater stories by Peter, Peter David, but this... I'm not I'm not really excited about Nick Spencer judging yeah, this character back it's up. It's fine. Again. We'll see. But... I Sorry, Marvel. I'm ready. <laughs> I'm not not ready. I'll say that. <laughs> sure. Yeah, no. I, I, I read that as well, and I'm like, yeah, no, I, I think I'm ready for yeah, the like, Sin Eater. Okay. My next review is of Empire colon X-Men number one from Marvel. Leave it to Jonathan Hickman to craft an event tie-in that feels like anything but. He and co-writer Tiny Howard put the Scarlet Witch at the center of the tale, seeking to make amends for wiping out most of the world's mutants. I thought that Marvel had already hand-waved all that away as Dr. Doom's fault, but whatever. Naturally, she does something way worse, resurrecting every dead mutant killed by Cassandra Nova on Genosha as a zombie, just in time for a Kotati invasion force to show up. What follows is a bizarre comic book version of the video game Plants vs. Zombies, with a few X-Men peppered in for good measure. Is this essential for the Empire event? Oh, I doubt it very much. Uh, But it's just as fucking weird as everything else Hickman has been doing with the Dawn of X line. It feels way more like an X-Men book than it does an Empire book. Oh, totally. And the the art by Matteo Bufadini is great. Uh, For the sheer absurdity of it alone, I'm giving Empire X-Men number one a bias. Yeah, I loved it. I mean, and it felt like, okay, it's a tie-in Empire, but I love that like Hickman did it, had fun with it, and probably pitched it as Plants versus Zombies. Let's have fun. let's see <laughs> what we like, can do here. It was it's great. like Marvel came to him and was like, Jonathan, we need you to write an X-Men tie-in for this event. And Hickman was like, uh-huh, yeah, no problem. <laughs> like I'll fire something off in my spare time. Oh, I'll bet they came to him and they were like, hey, oh, by the way, don't worry about the Empire thing. Somebody else is writing it. And he was like, no, 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 I'm going to do it. I got an idea. (laughs) (laughs) Because it just felt like another issue of the X-Men and I've missed his X-Men. This was a great way to get back into it. And I loved, loved, loved the stuff between Professor X and Angel because I feel like Warren Worthington has been so sidelined for so long and i don't care about archangel i do not care about it it lasted too long didn't need it coming back i like good looking warren with white wings businessman and this businessman yes the one the one not bad businessman yes and the scene they had together was wonderful and it, it, it just shows how well hickman understands these characters i love this huge buy it my next review is Bliss, number one from Image. This is written by Sean Lewis with art by Caitlin Yarsky. I have never heard of either of these creators. Have you? No. I do not know them. Imagine a musical written by Fight Club writer Chuck Palahniuk, directed by Lin-Manuel Miranda, about why criminals commit the most heinous of crimes, and you've got Bliss, a twisted but beautiful tale about a man trying to do the right thing for his family in the face of the secret reptile people that control society. And no, yeah. I'm not making that up. <laughs> that was a curveball. <laughs> yeah, I loved it. <laughs> Yarsky's art and framing gives the story this fairy tale feel, and Lewis's script moves at literal breakneck speed, only slowing down to focus on the misery surrounding the main character who is gently guided by the crushing evil of the universe to accept his place in the world with a mystic drug that helps him forget the terror of his actions. <laughs> I've never read anything like this. It was incredible. When I started it, I was kind of hesitant. Like, where are we going here? By the end, totally sold. I loved it. And I would argue that curveball that we just talked about is the perfect way to sell the idea that they're trying to sell in this issue. Like, why would a group of bankers get together and do something so disgusting and so evil that they know they're going to get in trouble and they know they're going to get busted? Why do they do it? Because they have this thing 
called Bliss that somebody gave them because they need them to do this and it'll make them forget and not feel as bad as they should. (laughs) It's so good. I'm giving it a buy it. I thought that the world building was really great. Uh, it, this feel, it felt like sort of this kind of, um, almost Tim Burton esque. Yeah. You know, like over, over stylized version of a world where like all of the city's buildings have these menacing shapes. Sure. And yeah. And like, I thought the art was incredible. Beautiful. Yeah. And the pacing was so good. It reminded me of the first like 25 minutes of raising Arizona, the Coen brothers movie where it's just like the banjo is playing the whole time. And they're just like slowly developing the story and like introducing you to the characters. And like, you're seeing how shitty H.I. McDonough's life is in all these different situations <laughs> and how he ends up marrying this woman and how they decide they're going to steal a baby. And all of a sudden the credits hit and you're like, Oh my God, <laughs> it was great. Yeah, I really, really enjoyed this. I'm giving it a huge buy it. It was a total surprise. Like you said, I'd never heard of these creators before. I had no idea what to expect. I loved it. This is one, don't turn this into a movie. I want to see this as an animated feature. Yeah, you know, it's got that feel. Yes. Where you could do like a really cool looking animated. love it. And do it like Disney Don Bluth style animation. Don't get too slick with it. Make it look classic. I would love this. Our final review of the week goes to Chew, number one from Image. Everyone knows I hated the ending of John Lehman and Rob Guillory's Chew, but I did really love that world. And Chew, with a U, is a welcome return to it. Lehman writes, as you would expect, playing con woman Saffron Chew against the protagonist of the original series, her straight-laced cop brother Tony. Dan Boltwood takes over the artistic reins from Guillory, And as with the original series, the extreme cartooniness of the art contrasts with the wonderfully over-the-top violence that accompanies a great Chew story. Layman introduces a number of fun food-based powers as well. New ones we haven't seen before. Yeah, it's a pretty uh, clever shit. (laughs) Like the the baker that can bake scale models of banks, and then you can eat them and know everything about the inside of that bank. He's like, here's a cake. Everybody look at it. Remember all the entrances and memorize it. And they eat it. They're like, got it. (laughs) Yeah. This was a blast to read. I know I was critical of the ending of the first series, but returning to this universe was a delight. Chew with a U, number one, gets a buy it. Yeah, this feels like something that John Lehman can just crank out. And because he pulled you right back into the world, like page one. You were right back there. It felt totally natural. It doesn't feel like a stunt. It doesn't feel like he's trying to return to his big success and make more money. It feels like he's got more story to tell. The art is fantastic. The new powers are super clever. I'm totally down with this. Hopefully he can stick the landing this time, giving it a buy it. Is it only a five issue series? Oh, I don't know. Because it said part one of five when you open it. It doesn't say that on the f- cover. Um, all of the storylines in Chew were like that. They okay. were labeled like that. Oh, that's right. That's right. Okay. Yeah. Grunch! That is it for your new comic reviews this week. And Grunch is a sound made by Miss Strong fueling up for her next heist, a scene in the pages of Chew, number one. She's a power eater. This onomatopoeia of the week was submitted by Joe Patrick himself because we waited too long to ask you jerks. But the good news is you can submit your onomatopoeia of the week anytime. Just post it to any of our social media accounts. Send us an email to editnerdgmail.com or better yet, call us and make the noise with your mouth. Tell us what issue it came from and what is making the noise and we will play it on the show. Yeah, we just need a little bit of context, you know? Yeah. Review time is over, but there is still work to be done. Unholy work with the aid of one vial of the sweat of the son of Satan. Welcome to the THN Sanctum Sanctorum, where drinking this vial of sweat will reveal to us our must-read picks for next Wednesday, July 29th. Bottoms up, Matthew. Oh. Oh, God. My pick for next week. Lost Soldiers, number one of five. It's written by Ailish Cott with art by, whew, here we go. Luca Casalanguida 
And Heather yep. Moore. I can say the Heather one just fine. You nailed it. Yeah, Americans. Stuck the landing. We got easy, stupid names. Until kid people started naming their kids like Caden and Shaden and Braden and shit. But anyway, it's 32 pages for $3.99. Here's your solicit. This is my son, Chaden. <laughs> Vietnam, 1969. Juarez, 40 years later. Three men tied by the war they left behind on a collision course with a new one. That's it. That's all you need to tell us. Look, I really like the way Ailish Cott writes comics. They are weird. They're super out there. And I just trust him. So when I see his name on something, I'm going to check it out. I'm in. Yeah, should be fun. The preview art looks really fucking cool, too by the way. Uh, my pick is also an image comic. It's the Hedra one shot written and drawn by Jesse Lonergan. Pardon me, Jesse Lonergan. It's 56 pages for five 99. And here is your solicit in a glorious exploration of the comics medium with echoes of 2001, a space odyssey, flash Gordon and Chris Ware. Oh, and Mobius. Sorry. Too many ands and not enough commas. A lone astronaut leaves a world ravaged by nuclear war in search of life. What she finds is beyond all explanation. That's it. <laughs> That's two solicits well, with very little to go off they of. They named a lot of things that I really, really like. So. Yes. Uh, <laughs> Sometimes you can the, do that, you know? The I picked this based on the cover alone. Uh, it, it's like a very masterfully composed, like Chris Ware style or Mobius style, sure. like purposefully designed yeah, piece clean, of art. Art deco. And it immediately kinda. drew me in, and I'm totally on board for it. Cool. Yeah, I looked at the preview art for this as well, and it and it does look really clean, really well designed, and I see why they're throwing Chris Ware references out. So yeah, yeah. I'm into it. I think it looks cool. Let me ask you. Did you, did you take a look at X Factor number one? Did you think about picking it? I thought about picking it, but then I saw who was writing it. I know. And I remembered that I have yeah. liked um, maybe one or two things that Leah Williams has ever written. It's kind of there too. And, and also, like, look, I love the name X Factor. I have, it's got a lot of pull for me <laughs> as a kid. I left it for you because I thought you might pull the trigger. I almost it. did, but I looked at that team again and I love Dokken. I totally admit it. Love that character. I can't pick that book. <laughs> I just can't. <laughs> it's like well, it's like North Star. Like the it's team like is North bizarre. Star, Eyeball Kid, Dokken, and Polaris, and like I don't know what they're doing. I don't know what they're doing with it. But they're gonna have to sell me on this version. We'll see. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the jury's out on that one, but it, it was definitely not something I was excited about. Yeah. The THN Trade of the Week goes to Pulp HC. That stands for hardcover. It's from Image Comics. It's written by Ed Brubaker with art by Sean Phillips. It is 72 pages. How much do you think this costs, Joe Patrick? If I told you I got a 72-page hardcover, how much How much do you think this costs? I don't know, like $29.99? $24.99? How about $16.99? Oh, I mean, it's a hardcover, right? Yeah, you, you all overbid. Here's your solicit. It is a gorgeous, original graphic novel from the best-selling creators of Killer Be Killed! My heroes have always been junkies! And criminal! Max Winters, a pulp writer in the 1930s New York, not the, just 1930s New York, finds himself drawn into a story not unlike the tales he churns out at five cents a word. Tales of a Wild West Outlaw dispensing justice with a six gun. But will Max be able to do the same when pursued by bank robbers, Nazi spies, and enemies from his past? One part thriller, one part meditation on a life of violence. Pulp is unlike anything award-winning Brubaker and Phillips have ever done before. This celebration of pulp fiction set in a world on the brink is another must-have hardcover from one of comics' most acclaimed writers. Now, if this book... 50 pages for $16.99. I would still tell you, you need to buy this. These two jerks work together unlike just about any pair of creators in the business. And they do something that is going to be recognizable. You know when you're going into it, you're going to be able to recognize their work, their writing style, their art, but it's going to be a little different every time and it's going to surprise you and it's going to be right. fantastic. Go pick this up. Right. And I, I really have no problem with 
this price point for a hardcover graphic novel of it's this insane. length. insane. 16 bucks, $17 for 72 pages. That's crazy. It's cheap. I, I mean, it's, it's like, it's on par with, you know, Mike Mignola putting out those Hellboy OGNs, those little short stories or the amazing screw on head or whatever as a hardcover. Right. Like it's fine. It's fine. It's a nice little thing for your bookshelf. It's not going to be a taxing read. You're going to be able to knock it out in an afternoon in no sure. time at all. And it's going to be just time well spent. It's going to be gorgeous to look at too. Sean Phillips is amazing. Yeah. And it's all, uh, again, uh, colored by uh, Sean Phillips's kid. Uh, we just Jacob? Jacob Phillips, Jordan Phillips. Or I'm going to say Jacob. J- Jimmy Jojo Jr. Shabadoo Phillips? It's not, it starts with a J. I, I think that. it's I think it's Shabadoo Phillips. I think it's Jimmy Jojo Jr. Shabadoo Phillips. <laughs> yeah, the junior comes before the Phillips part for sure. Yeah. Nerds, hear what I say. Be sure to hit up your local comic book store and add these comics to your list so you can read along at home. Let us know what you think of them. Are we crazy for picking them? Did you love them? And Adding them to your pull file just does your comic shop a favor, especially in these uncertain times. They need all the help they can get. But also, let us know what you're reading. I mean, we picked two books and a hard and a hardcover. We missed a bunch of stuff. Bring it to our attention. Tell us what we should be reading, what you'd like to hear us review on the show. We want to hear from you guys. You can do that on our Facebook page, Twitter, on our email, anywhere you want. Just hit us up. Let us know. We may not have any summer blockbuster movies this year, but that's not stopping Woolly Toots from revisiting some favorite movies with comic adaptations of yesteryear. It's time for another edition of Swords and Scrolls, where Woolly Toots and Matt Baum are talking about the George Lucas classic. Well, oh. Why do you always have to do that? <laughs> because I love it. It's my favorite part. Forget all that you know or think. You know. Whoa. Because it's too. I'm another cigarette for another part in this series of Swords and Quarantine. Here we are. <laughs> swords and Quarantine. Once again, Swords and Quarantine, <laughs> number two. <laughs> uh, uh, tonight, we're here to talk about Willow. Willow. Which, a true summer blockbuster. From 1988. We don't have any summer blockbusters this year, so we've had to go back and get old ones. Right? Yeah. There's no summer blockbusters. So real quick, before we get into it, let me just set up what else was in the theater. Willow won the first uh, weekend that was out. Bang! It was a number one film, and it beat Friday the 13th Part 7, A New Blood, (laughs) 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 which had had been out for one week, so it just beat that, and then it trounced Colors and Beetlejuice, which had already been out for eight weeks. So Willow was like the, it was, it came out May, like the weekend before Memorial Day. Willow, by no means a massive success, though. If you look at 1988, it is the 12th highest grossing movie for 1988. It was beaten by number 11, A Fish Called Wanda. <laughs> a huge, hey, that's a good movie. Yeah, Kevin Klein, Jamie Lee Curtis. That movie kicked yeah, yeah, ass. Yeah, that's, Are you kidding that's a good me? Movie. Oh, so Willow, we'll call it a we'll call it a cult hit, perhaps. I that I'm gonna say yes, because there are people that love it. Oh yeah. Love it. Oh yeah. People go apeshit over this movie, but I feel like none of them are age appropriate. Like I saw Willow in the theater. I remember I, I was like, George Lucas, this is going to be Star Wars, but it's going to be set in the fantasy world. And you know what? It was completely Star Wars set in a fantasy world. There was even like a Darth Vader and there was like an emperor. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. And I think, didn't that dude play uh, the actor that played General Kale, your, your Darth, Vader, Darth Vader analog? Right. Wasn't he... Uh, the German that uh, Indiana Jones boxes. Yes. Pat Roach uh, around the airplane. His name is same Pat actor. Roach. Yep. Same exact mm-hmm. dude. Uh, so Lucas loved this guy. And whenever he was like, I just need a big badass dude. He was in Conan the Destroyer as well. He was also in Red Sonia. Like any of those movies, like we need a big uh, badass dude that'll scare people. Boom. when He takes his shirt off. Boom. Pat Roach. He's your guy. <laughs> 
Uh, okay, so let's 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 talk a little bit. Okay, so now, so Willow is on Disney Plus, right. and like when I first kicked on Disney Plus, it was front page and center. But now you got to dig to find Willow. Like yeah. they. Well, and it's, for a it's minute been there, to the back now. There was like rumors that we were going to get like a Willow TV show on Disney yeah, Plus and there's stuff rumors like that. They're, if they're they can scouting make, locations for a sequel, right? If they can uh, make the Mandalorian, we can make a Willow TV show, right? Everyone's going to watch yes. that. I feel like people right? are giving this movie a little too much credit. <laughs> they, oh, okay, now listen. I mean? I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna. There are some, there are some great things in the movie. Like I. I love it. To tell you the truth, like I love it. I do like, too. I love there's some really fun ideas. There's some there's some cool lore that they've built. Like I really love uh Bav Mort. I love the Evil Queen. Yeah, like, she's, she is great. Her, I would argue her and Val Kilmer are the only two in the movie that are legitimately good. Like actors, now, like put on a really yeah, good I, performance. Everyone else is just sort look, of like, I'm doing my British stage, you know, actor thing, or I'm a little mm-hmm. person that's just doing the best I can. All right. They let me not be in a costume for a change. Give me a fucking break. Okay. <laughs> you know? And I, I mean, uh, people love Mad Mardigan. The, the Pathfinder role playing game has a cast of iconic characters that they use they're their they're their poster children right for the game and for every class in the role-playing game and their character valeros is modeled off of mad martigan like his armor everything yeah. his hair like i've you seen can pictures see it. definitely no like doubt. it's so there is such love for this film that I and I believe you know people have blinders on when it comes to the film. Totally. Now it. Let me let me ask you this real quick. I yeah. I hadn't seen this in a long time and I just rewatched it the other day and I forgot the scene where the kids find the baby. The story is basically like Noah, you know, or like yeah, you've yeah. got this kid that's that's going to overthrow the evil queen and they're looking for you. The kid has a certain kind of birthmark and they steal the kid away and put it on a you know a raft and it send it into the river and the little people find it and they're like, dad, come check this out. And Warwick Davis runs down with his kids who are the cutest kids on the fucking planet, by the yeah, way. And the first time they've ever acted. Oh my God. They're amazing. The and first time they've ever acted. They're like, she's not like us. And then Warwick yeah. Davis says, yep, she's not an elf. And I went, what? <laughs> like, hold on. <laughs> I remember the term peck being thrown around. I remember that was no offensive. Way, like to them, yeah. that's like, it, that's seriously offensive. But I didn't remember that they were supposed to be elves they're, and not dwarves. Uh, so I think that, uh, like, it's, there's, there's a few little, little flubs like that. Yeah. Like, um, that they had to flub. go back and I call fix. it a weird choice. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like, like Lucas was like, nah, 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 screw all that Lord of the Rings bullshit. I'm making my own stuff up. We got daikinis. Yeah. We got brownies. We got pecs. <laughs> <You know? Yeah. laughs> Whatever. <laughs> we got death dogs, man. Yeah. Which were literally dogs that they put in costumes, by the way. They were. Yeah. They had an animatronic for uh, close up fighting. And then yep. otherwise they had. <laughs> They stuck a dog. They had, uh, it was Rottweilers. Yep. It was Rottweilers. And just that like, they had in costume. And you could tell those dogs were pissed, man. <laughs> yeah. Not like it. So, I mean, this movie's got a little bit of everything. You know, it's got all kinds of sorcery. Uh, you know, you've got your little people that are like hobbits. You've got dragons and trolls and then warriors and all, you know, all kinds. Of, it goes all over the place. Yeah, you got a prophecy. You got it all. It's all here. Yeah. It, it writes itself. Ch- it checks off all the boxes yeah. for a fantasy film. Right. But like I said, Bab Mort is my favorite. And there are two parts in the film. Man, it just gets me each time. The, uh, it's all, uh, and they're all at the end. So when the army is at Bab Mort's castle and they're like, going to siege it. And she comes out, Bab Mort looks at them all and is laughing. And she turns them all into pigs. She's like, you're all pigs. You're not an army. And they all start turning into pigs, yeah. except for her daughter. Now, her daughter has been her loyal number one fighter has now joined the cause of uh, the good, the good side, right? right? The good guys. Right. And she's like, 
she doesn't start changing at first. And then when she yells up to her mom and Bab Morda looks down at her daughter, you can see in her face where she like, where it clicks and she's like, screw it. Changing my daughter too. It's over. This is Sorsha, right? The, the redhead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When, she was so, so when Bab Morda oh, she was decides so to turn Sorsha and then she does it. She does this one last kick to the spell that starts her transformation and her face turns to this like smile and then she just starts laughing and she's you're just like oh man this this chick's gone yeah that Morda's evil Ooh. this is george lucas where with every star wars film he pushed the technology you know what i mean yeah that was his thing with the star wars films he was like each film i'm gonna do something new with this technology. And this was the first time they did morphing. Yeah. The full on, like, like a cat where, turning into a person yeah, or like the woman yeah. that turned the lemur that turns into the old lady. Yeah. And like, Oh yeah. They but, went. And then it. morphing caught on huge with movies after this. Yeah. And then it became like, you don't want to do morphing. Like yeah. after a while, like everyone's like, everyone does morphing. Right. You don't want to do morphing in your films anymore. We got man. But this was the TV first film like, to do This it. is a bad idea. <laughs> like, All right. Forget <laughs> it. Never mind. <laughs> but you know, for the time. Wow. Oh, it kicked ass. And Holy I would crap. say even watching like the movie again, it doesn't look that bad. It looks a little weird, but there's definitely stuff that was made after this that looks weirder yeah. and does not hold up as well. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, Willow is fun. It's just good fantasy fun. They put about as much thought into this as they did Star Wars. And like I said, this ticks off all the Star Wars boxes except for Chewbacca, basically. There's no monster that's their friend. <laughs> that's it. I mean, maybe the brownies. They're sort of like, uh, yeah, maybe. You know, like little comic relief monsters who kind of yeah. resemble Lenny and Squiggy. <laughs> which yeah. in my mind they were Lenny and Squiggy from Laverne and Shirley for some reason <laughs> I always thought they were but it's um what's his name it's um, not it's uh, uh Pollock uh yeah the, yeah yeah the Kevin Pollock comedian Kevin, Kevin Pollock, Pollock and Rick Overton who I don't really know but Kevin Pollock super famous and I think this is a very early in Kevin Pollock's they meant to do more George Lucas teamed up with Chris Claremont yeah. to write the sequel a, a fantasy novel called Shadow Moon, which I have, and I read it back in 90, 1995, but I remember it being a chore to get through where like wasn't really doing it for me. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like it, yeah. it didn't really hook. I never followed up. Well, maybe it's because you weren't reading it 22 pages at a time, like Claremont's meant to be read, you know, <laughs> <laughs> on a monthly basis. Speaking of which, right, let's right. talk about the comic. Let's talk about yeah! the, the Marvel adaptation. Because I Holy junk. that came out before the movie. I specifically remember because it's like, I have to have this. Because that was back in the day where it's like they would put the movie, you know, adaptation out like the same month. And it was usually like two weeks before. And we yeah. didn't give a fuck about spoilers. We we're like, I don't give a shit. I, I gotta know. I wanna go to the I wanna we, know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And we talked, we talked about that with Kroll. They did the same thing. And there uh the thing about the comic book, first off. I applaud them for giving it three issues because yeah. most of the time with these things, they did these, they did two issues. Right. And it was just, they like, did it with blade he, runner. They did it for, for, for your eyes only. Here's the they extreme did it. cliff notes version of the movie yeah. basically, but they tried to but, flesh this one out. I think they legit thought George Lucas is getting behind a fantasy movie. This is going to be massive. And Marvel is going to be the company that gets to put this shit out. And not only did they do it as a three issue, they then put it into their graphic novel line. Yeah. But the magazine sized graphic novel line that started with like what, you know, like the, the super expensive to get the death of Captain Marvel. There's like a, there's like, like a, the, first the new mutants first issue. The new mutants. Yeah. Was this. There's a list uh, in the, in the thing that I, where I yes. read it, there's a list, the graphic novels from Marvel and Epic comics. And it's like the death yeah. of Captain Marvel, Elric by Roy Thomas, Dreadstar, yeah. Jim Starlin, the X-Men, Chris Claremont, star yeah. slammers, Walt Simonson. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I love star slammers. <laughs> yeah. And then Willow. Like, yeah. How, how did Willow. they think? Yeah. And okay. So I looked at both versions because I have the first issue of the, uh, of the three issue limited series. So I had to find the rest online to read it. And uh, I looked at the graphic novel and I looked at the single issues. So for the graphic novel, they removed two pages, 
which was like the intro recap page. Okay. And then there's like a full page splash, splash page after that. And they removed those for the graphic novel so that it just read as one big, long, continual thing. Right. Let's quickly talk about the creators, Joe Duffy. Yeah. Who, I got to be honest, I did not know was a woman until just now. Joe Duffy is, in fact, a woman. <laughs> I, I didn't know. Always has been. Joe Duffy writes. I know. And Bob Hall is uh, on pencils. I, I, I love Bob, Bob Hall. Bob Hall from Lincoln, Nebraska. Yes. Bob Hall. Yes. I love Bob Hall. This is not the best of Bob Hall's work. There's some moments this, where like his, some of his, some of his work is good. And then others, he really didn't care about capturing likenesses. No, this is Bob Hall doing Walt Simonson is what it is. Sure. It's totally, sure. it's Bob Hall doing a Walt Simonson impersonation. He didn't want to go straight up, you know, movie and just like lift their faces, but he did stay very close. You can mm-hmm. I- definitely identify everyone. I would argue they did too much in this comic. It's almost taken frame for frame in some parts where it doesn't need to be, which leads me to believe they sure. stretched it out on purpose because they well, thought this was going to be massive. They thought this was going to be the biggest thing in the world. The, the thing that uh, jumped out at me too was it, like you said, it had to have been like you said with Kroll, they got the scripts or yeah. whatever. And then they made did the comic translation off of that because there are four scenes in the comic that don't appear in the movie and having read them in the comic makes the things in the film make more sense. Yeah. The first one is when Willow goes to the lake where there's an Island out in the middle of the lake. That is where uh, the sorceress Razel has been imprisoned by the evil queen Bab Morda. Right. And he takes a boat out to the lake and they don't show that at all in the movie. And in the comic on the way to the lake, a water fae creature appearing as a little boy pops up and is like, Hey, 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 don't go to the lake or, or don't go to the Island is what he says. Right. 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 Well, after he, re- after he gets the, uh, sorceress and they're coming back across the lake, the boy appears again and changes into a sea creature that he battles. That isn't in the film. No. And it's obviously the kind of thing where it's like, we don't have the money for the effects. Yeah. Uh, And I I always felt like something was missing from there. You know what I mean? (laughs) Definitely. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Like when you watch the film, you're kind of like, Oh, all right. You just had to go out there and there was nothing to it. Right. And, and then, you know, in like a, a Dungeons and Dragons scenario or any sort of fantasy film, it's like, Oh, we got to get over this hurdle to get, to rescue this person and there was no hurdle. Right. And so I was always kind of like, Hmm. Uh, the next is once Sorsha and the bad guys capture Alora Dan and the baby and Willow and Mad Mardigan. And they're at the camp. Willow is taken out of the cell to uh, feed care change for the baby in Sorsha's tent yeah. and they have a little exchange and then, uh, you know, then he's put back into the cell and then they, uh, they break out thanks to the brownies and then they sneak into Sorsha's tent to get the baby. And so that, that was the nice little setup onto how the baby got in the tent. And yeah, I guess it's really not that necessary. It's not that necessary, but we do in that moment, see that maybe Sorsha's not a bad Guy. Yeah, right. You know, maybe yeah. she's just like she's doing her job and she thinks she's doing the right thing. Cause in the movie, that all happens very suddenly. And they kind of in the movie, yeah. the whole scene is like, oh, whoops, the brownies accidentally hit Val Kilmer with the love dust. And he walks in there and falls in love with her. And it's just like, oh my God, she's gorgeous. You know, when he's trying to steal the baby. And yeah. and she's like, I love you. You're everything. And she's like, stop, no. What? Oh, oh. And then she just kind of softens up. <laughs> and then the next thing, you know, like, oh, she's a good guy. <laughs> you know? And, and so and that leads to the, uh, but the, the in the comic, there's like a full out. scene where like he hands she has the baby and she's like, she's not a mother. She doesn't get it. And she starts yeah. to have this moment where she's like, Well, I never had kids. I wanted to be a soldier and I wanted to fight for my mom and stuff like that. 
like that. And she's like, how do you shut this thing up or whatever? And Willow's like, yeah. well, you're doing yeah. it wrong, you know? <laughs> yeah. So like in that moment, I think she kind of realizes like, oh man, maybe I did miss something. And that would have been nice in the movie because it really doesn't make sense why she turns into a good guy at all. <laughs> so. Which, yeah, which is the third thing. So when they go to um, uh, Tira's lean, right? Right. And it's supposed to be like, oh man, once we get to Tira's lean, everything's going to be great. There's an army there. Uh, you know, uh, there's a, a, a king there that'll take care of uh, the baby and it's going to be great. Well, when they get there, the whole kingdom's been turned to stone by trolls, right. which I don't really get. Or, or no, they were probably turned to stone by Babmorda, but the trolls have moved in and taken over the uh, kingdom. In the comic book, they say that the king, the good king, is Sorsha's dad. And oh, that's right. That's totally and, yeah. That's right. And and when she is when she's in there during the fight, she sees him in stone, and he is he speaks to her, and that helps her click. Oh shit! Right, mom's bad news. Mom's bad news. This is bullshit. And that would have helped again. Yeah, with like her turn, and again, totally ended up on the cutting room floor because of yeah. who knows time editing. Whatever. I mean, this comic is way better than the movie. <laughs> it really is. <laughs> because it, like there's there's more of the world here. There's more yeah. like monsters and shit. There's more yeah. development of the characters. And I don't know if they ran out of money when they were making the movie or they just went, Jesus Christ, nobody's going to sit through a two and a half hour movie. What are you crazy? Like, we'll save that for the early 2000s. When the Lord of the Rings come out. But this is 1988. People want a tight 90 minutes and that's it, you know? <laughs> yeah. The, the fourth scene I was talking earlier about when Sorsha and Razel and Willow are making their way up to the tower top yeah. to rescue the baby and to face Queen Bavmorda. A death dog attacks them on the stairs and Sorsha fights the death dog before they ever get up there. And that's out of the film too. And it's like, that would have been cool because the death dogs just kind of disappear after a certain point you really don't see him well not just that but that also really concrete sorsha as a good guy too mm. she's now fighting the bad guys straight up because in the movie we just kind of get to like the pig thing we're like oh we feel bad for her you know like uh she got tricked my mom and in that moment when it doesn't change that's when she's like all right well mom you're officially a bitch you know <laughs> yeah <laughs> another thing in the comic that they didn't do in the movie like as much as everybody likes Mad Mardigan, I think they just like it because Val Kilmer is so good in the role because we don't get to see him do very much cool shit in the movie. Not entirely. No, he and, builds I mean, himself that's, as this that's... badass fighter, but we don't see much of that in the comic. He's doing all manner of cool shit. He's wearing armor. <laughs> he's a badass swordsman. He's fighting monsters. Like in mm. in the movie, he's kind of a coward the whole time. That sort of like accidentally becomes a hero. <laughs> you know? Yeah, he's kind of a kind of a goofball, and yeah. then and then all of a sudden he's your Han Solo, like, oh. if you will. But Mad Mardigan never gets a badass scene where he gets to like shoot Greedo first. You know, he, it just doesn't happen. He's not even as good as Han Solo is at being Han Solo. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Like I said, uh, Mad Morgan's cool and all, but I like, he's not, he's not the, the, the draw to the film for me. You know what I mean? No. Like I, and he's uh, way cooler in the comics. He's way cooler <laughs> and way better fleshed out. They, and quite honestly, have they stuck with this comic storyline and really done the whole thing. I think the movie probably would have done better in the theaters. It wouldn't just be a cult classic. It's a cult classic now because it's weird. And there's some fun stuff. And there's some interesting performances. And I would argue the best tavern music ever recorded when the little people are all dancing around the beginning for the magic oh, yeah, festival. Yeah, festival music? That song man, man. kicks ass. That song like plays in my head sometimes. So I'm just like, you know what? today might be the day I kill myself. And that song starts playing. And I'm like, you know what? Things aren't so bad. It's just great. So I don't know. I mean, I'm going to give the cruel comic book was bad. It was just bad. And the cruel movie was so bad that it's great. Willow 
is not great, but has a special place in my heart. But I would argue this comic is legit good. And Marvel was on to something here. And I don't know if they were just fleshing out the script or they had the full script and it just got edited. But the Willow comic book is way better than the movie. Hands down. No question. Uh. <laughs> All right. So then what are what rating are you giving Willow? OK, and, and like, OK, now this is the second one we've done. I'm going to rate the movie the first and one. I'm going to rate the comic. So for the, mo- okay. the movie, as much as I love it, I can only give it two swords because there's parts mm. of it, like you said, that barely make sense. It definitely feels edited. It's kind of thrown together. And I would argue the only two people that have genuinely good performances in the film are Val Kilmer and Gene Marsh, who played Queen Bavmorda. Everybody else is just kind of doing their thing. Sure. The okay. comic, three fucking swords, man. It ruled. <laughs> it was great. And that like back cover with the Darth Vader dude with uh, General oh, Kale, novel? Pat Roach with the skull with like the hair and shit. I'm just like, fuck, dude, I want a van that I can paint that on the side of I'm like that. Is, that needs to be airbrushed on something. That was too cool. <laughs> right on. Right on. I'm flipping opposite of you. Oh, I still enjoy the movie Willow. And every time I watch it, I find another little nugget that like I, I really like. And I'm like, oh, man. It, it might be just a, a line that someone says or a costume or something. I find something to appreciate it more each time. So I have to give the movie three swords. Fair enough. But the comic book, although I appreciate that it's got more of the story and those parts of the story, I feel add a great deal. As you said, the artwork falls a little shitty for me it and, uh, and, and kind of outweighs that. So I'm giving the comic book two swords. Fair enough. Fair enough. I, what the main thing that I liked about the comic that they didn't do in the movie was they showed Willow become a sorcerer. And in the movie, it's just like, nice, nah, really bad at, he's just a shitty sorcerer. And in the end he has like this fucking dumb trick that, accidentally works and oh but dude and they win <laughs> you know and uh, in, the, in the comic he's like no he's a full-on fucking sorcerer he's like summoning shit in the end and they're like oh mm. shit we can't mess with willow anymore he's a badass you know <laughs> this was fun to revisit though and it was i had way more fun reading this comic than i thought i would like i'm like i was gonna say like i'll read a little bit of it and just get the idea and be like all right it was what it was i really enjoyed reading this comic <laughs> it was great <laughs> Well, that's good, man. Well, thanks for joining me, Matt. Thank you for inviting me. This was fun. Oh, hell, I'm look, I'm going to keep you coming back for the other ones I got lined up. Oh, if it's, you'll do them, it's so. just like old school, old dude movie theater. Are you kidding me? I'm totally <laughs> down. <laughs> Everyone, stay safe. Shields up. Keep your masks on. That's right. And we'll catch you next time on Swords and Scrolls. Excelsior! That is it for THN 582! Next week, Ryan Hebrews Mount is back with his Take a Look, It's in a Book review of Gene Luen Yang's Dragon Hoops. This is continuing his uh, basketball-themed comic book reviews in a yeah, series. Yeah, we're calling we're it calling Double it. Dribble. I was just going to say, you stole my fire, you son of a bitch. <laughs> no, he did it. He, like, he did it. It was his oh, idea. Oh, really? That's great. I love it. Until then, Joe Patrick, sign these kids up for a new question of the week. This week's question was submitted by Trevor via the THN forums. Hey, nerds, was anyone else as underwhelmed as I was when EA revealed their next Star Wars game, Squadrons? It had me daydreaming about all those unfinished titles from LucasArts that Disney tossed down the garbage chute. So my question is, what canceled project in any media are you still dreaming about? Now, when he says canceled project, he's not talking about a show or a comic book that came out for a while and then got canceled. Yeah, this never he's happened. Talk- this was killed in the he's womb. Talking ab- yes, he's talking about pop culture uh, projects that were canned before they even came out. Cover to Cover is back every Saturday at 10.30 a.m. live on our Facebook page, and it's the new home for our nerd news segment. So call us at 402-819-4894 or shoot an MP3 of your answer to twoheadednerd at gmail.com. You could be internet famous. 
Remember, keep it under two minutes. We need to share the air with the other nerds. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I get it. When we have live callers, sometimes we go over. But that's just because not enough of you are calling in live. Yeah. If we've got people breaking down the door, we will start cutting these fools off. And you hear me. I'll say it on the show. I'm like, hey, I got people trying to get in here. Get the hell out of here. See you later, Brian Domingos. Nice try. You know? (laughs) If you're new to this show and you would rather poop in your shoes than talk to us for two minutes live, I assure you, it's only because you haven't heard enough. The good news is you can hear the entire run of THN in our digital long box archive at TwoHeadedNerd.com, but hosting that many episodes, it ain't cheap, chillins. So we want to thank donors like Mr. James Kaplan. THN stalwart. You can hear him on the weekends. Smart guy. James Kaplan Esquire. Isn't he a doctor? Isn't James a doctor? No, he's a lawyer. That's why he's James Kaplan Esquire. Oh, that's what Esquire means? You're a lawyer? Yes. Oh, I thought it meant something else. What? No. I don't know. I thought it meant like, the, like your grandfather was a horse or something. I don't know. <laughs> no, that's that's equestrian. <laughs> Before we go, our weekly shout out goes to Congressman and Civil Rights Leader John Lewis, who passed away last Friday at age 80 following a six month battle with cancer. Uh, you may have heard that Lewis was a comic creator as well, a co writer of the March series and its sequel, Run all based on his legendary life, and they are all essential reading. Absolutely. Word to you, Congressman Lewis, the world is a poorer place without you. Rest in power, John. Thank you for everything you did. And until next time, true believers, remember to pre-order your comics or your retailer might just tweet a picture of someone that's not you when he says goodbye (laughs) after you've passed away. Oh, boy. This is the Two-Headed Nerd signing off. Marco Rubio (laughs) tweeted a picture of a different black person and said, we will miss you. (laughs) You know, I wish I could say I was surprised. Go figure.